Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday afternoon. Let's take a look at the Parsha, Parsha 3, which is being sponsored this week by our good friend, Green Acres, Dr. Ben Bernstein, as he says, and him and all the farm residents, the two-legged ones and the others. So thank you all. Now, um, thank you all very much. Uh, Parshas Re'e is, um, you know, seems like a ramble, you know, as a lot of the Dvarim is, but it but is, has deep stuff in it, obviously. And not sure in which order to go. It doesn't matter. Right off the bat, um, I was looking at the Akedis here, so you know that. Yeah, the Pasuk of Bonim Hashem, Hashem Al-Kechem Lusis Go to Do. You're bonim tashem al You're children of God. You're like children, which is an interesting phrase. Of course, at the rhetorical level, you say, "Oh, you're children of the Lord," but you know what's it mean? And why is Moshe use this kind of terminology? Bonim hashem al You know, why don't you say you're worshippers, you're avodim, you're this, that, and the other? Uh, ben is an interesting thing. Plus, or in addition, this causes us. To focus a little bit deeper, because we live in an era that always has, in which people can be children of someone biologically, but are they children that can be highly estranged, unfortunately, you see, from the parents or that kind of thing. And uh, let's put it this way. Uh, this is an extreme example. Absalom was the son of David. Well, big deal. <laughs> you know, big deal. Tried to kill him. So, what do you mean, Bunim Hashem, I'll tell you that the Jewish people are Bunim. This isn't me rambling. It's a famous Gemara. It's a free, actually. Some of will remember in Kedushan. And it's fascinating to me because, as is always the case, the Jewish religion, when it comes to, you know, uh, questions of Hashkafa and that kind of thing, and of course, also in Aloha, is has many possibilities, different ways of looking at things. And whereas, when you have a debate in the area of halachic practice, the tendency of the rabbinic literature is to strive to come out like, who's right, who do you follow? I shouldn't even say who's right. Hill versus Shama, who's right? It's not a question of who's right, but who do you follow? Or as we say, who do you poskin like? So, uh, on the other hand, when it comes to Ashkaf, we don't have that. There are one or two people that tiny you do, but not really. Not really. It's baloney. Um... They're different schools of thought. And they're all within the Torah. So, for example, if you look in the Gemara Kedushan, or in the Sifri over there, you know, towards the end of the first paragraph, Alam Yavav, you have, I'm reading from the Gemara now, not me. A, a, a fascinating uh, debate between two biggies, Rabbi and Rabbi Yehuda, two second generation Tanan, major figures. If you maintain 
that kind of relationship. A child has to have kibbutz of aim. A child has to have a certain uh, way of relating to the parents. Uh, you know, let, let's say respect and that sort of thing. So, on the other hand, if I'm biologically your child, and I re- I'm going to be very blunt, I'm biologically your child, and I respect you, and I act accordingly, when you kick the bucket, I get all your money. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? In other words, the relationship kicks in. Uh, it may be that there are some children who act towards the parents the way they do because they're thinking down the road and getting something. There are other people who the parents may be supporting them in one way or the other along the way, and that's the way they're doing it. And then, of course, there's the ideal where the parent <laughs> isn't giving them anything. And the kid's a good kid's tamazite, right? Good kid's tamazite. There's even a better, a bigger madrigal. The parent actually acts Pretty lousy towards the kid. Not extreme, though. Lousy towards the kid. Makes snide remarks. This and that and the other. I know it doesn't happen in Baltimore, but it happens elsewhere. <laughs> anyway, and in spite of what I just said, the child, you know, has a loving or respectful relationship with the parent. So, basically, when it says, According to Rabbi Yudhubari Loy, he said to me like this, if you're Mekayim Demitzvah and you act Hashem the way you're supposed to act, He will treat you like Bonim. Which means He'll give you special treatment. Whereas if, if they're Goy or something like that, if they act a special way towards Hashem, the right way, and they keep the Shem Mitzvah or whatever else they're supposed to keep, Hashem will reward them, of course, but it won't be like Bonim. Okay? How to define that? I don't know. I, I'm not going to shoot the bull with that. You, you, know, you figure yourself. There's a difference between me paying out something to some, to a good employee uh, who, who fulfilled what he or she is supposed to do according to the work contract, did a fine job, and I'm happy to pay him out the full price. And then if it's your kid or your grandkid in the same situation, you just do it with a different feeling or maybe give him a little more, whatever. That's the way Rabbi Huda says it. But it is dependent. If you act bad towards me, the father says, I'll write you out of the will. Or Hashem says, I won't give you nothing. You see? Bizman, Shatem no hagin minik banim, Atem kurim banim. Ain't Atem no hagin minik banim? You don't act like a kid's supposed to act towards a parent? Ain't Atem kurim banim? By contrast, that's one school of thought. By contrast, Rameir, Omer, Rameir says, Ben kachu ben kachu Atem kurim banim. Shem rebanim scholim heima and he's got psukim. So, that's very interesting. A kid's a kid, a child's a child, and the biology dominates over everything else. And even if the kid doesn't act right, they still put him like Shemal Kechan. This is really ancient stuff, which is always fostered to policy lines within the history of Judaism, which is down with us today. And one is that... You know, all Jews call Yisrael Rehm Zelazeb. And even I see somebody's Machal Shabbos, Gilarad, Shvichadam, Avodazor, and all the rest of it. I relate to him as a fellow Yid. I'm not happy that the person is not being Makayim, what he's supposed to do. But the same way a parent, let's say, for example, 
would relate to a child who's not doing what he's supposed to do. They say, but still he's my kid. Or this is still my brother. And some people are like that. Some people are like that. Now mind you, it is possible for a parent to act so bad, I and I have seen this, that, you know, there is no relationship. There's a biological relationship, but that's it. I wouldn't even say the parent earned any respect in the case I'm thinking of. Cases. Um, because a parent can act very bad. So I mean, it's not automatic. But generally speaking, that's not true. That's not what happens. And, you know, nobody's perfect in their parent-child relationships. You do what you can. And, bang kacha, bang kacha, tem kareem bonim. Even if things ain't so hatsi-tatsi, it's still bonim Hashem lakecha. The other way is like this. If you're from, you're in. If you're not from, the hell with you. Uh, that's more or less what has emerged in the modern era, last 100, 250 years, roughly speaking. It's not good. Nobody says it's good, but it's what happened. There's the front community and then there's the others. And then not much to do with the other. I, I'll point out, and you're all brothers and sisters, if you want to look at it that way. And, you know, this rough cook type of talk. It's not incorrect, but it's gatenish. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything, not really, other than the level of platitudes. Really, if you were knowing Minigbanim, or as we would say today, knowing Minigachan, okay, if not, then you're out. So, there's no right or wrong in this, because if they're giving you a machlokas between two people like Rabbi Yehuda, Barilo, and Rameir, that means that both of these opinions are within Torah thought. You understand? There are two schools of thought 2,000 years ago already expressed. And they're both went in there. So when it says, Bonim Hashem, Los is go to do, it's kind of interesting. Because, you know, somebody can make a nice Torah out of this after a rabbi giving a sermon. Because, you know, as the Pesach, it says, Bonim Hashem, Los is go to do. Which, besides this literal meaning of cutting yourself, means Los is go to do. And Bani Lashem HaTalmud Kechab can mean, let's put it this way, according to Rameir, Losis Kodu means plain and simple. You're all related to each other. You're all children of the same father. If there are Chaluka Deis or Chaluka Maisim in terms of Halachas, or some keep Shabbos, some don't keep Shabbos, and all that, uh, it may be. But Losis to do. don't separate yourselves. Don't make a goodness a goodness. Don't make separate uh, things. Try to stay within the same community. Uh, this was the old model back in Europe before the Hungarians and Hirsch, you know, before the middle of the 19th century. But it is true that there were those who said, to use modern terminology, if you're from Yeshama Shabbos, Yeshama Mitzvah, Hatem Nikram I may not be a Satmar Chassid, a Lababacher, a this, that, and the other. I'm not Sephardic. But so what? Bismach atem noig minib bottom atem kareem bunin. Ain't atem noig minib bunin atem kareem bunin. This is the other school of thought. So no, the same Sreyvil Hirsch would be, so to speak, a Rabbi Yehuda guy. You see what I'm saying? Rav Cook would be a Rameyard guy. That whole Mahalach, which I think you can make a whole speech out of if you want to, but it's coming Shabbos.
And it goes to show you that um, these things were taken seriously, not just as platitudes. Because Rameh and Yehud are debating what is the exact parameters of this. And it comes to mind the famous story, I'm sure I mentioned before, there are those who say that the Baal Shem Tov died of heartache after the Frankists converted. I, the Frankists, uh, the followers of Jacob Frank, like Shabtai Tzvi, were beyond beyond, at orgies and who knows what. Beyond beyond. Right? Beyond beyond. Never, and the Frum were so angry at them. So I'm just condensing the whole story. That, uh, that this whole group mass converted. And the Frum said, I guess, good, hell with them. Good. It's a good thing they all became Goyim. Now we won't have to bother with them anymore. And the Baal Shem Tov said, well, but, you know, we lost the Chela Yisrael. It hurts. Now, to tell you the truth, um, in the Toldus Yeshu, which is not really a true story, but it's an ancient work, it reflects Jewish attitudes long ago. Isn't that exactly what happened? They said, these notes for him, the followers of Yeshu are causing a lot of trouble, infiltrating Jewish headquarters and making a mess in Shul and all the rest of it. So let's just make it tis go to do. <laughs> They're not knowing Minik Bonim. Kick them out. Let them start their own religion and we won't see with them anymore. But Kachavit, and in the tells Yeshu, that was considered a successful plot. That's the legend of uh, Peter and all the rest of it, that they wrote Nishmas and all that whole business. And what's it all about? That's reflecting a Rabbi Yehuda kind of point of view, which is you're not knowing men and you're not Bonim We have no Shaykhs with you. You're a different religion. You want to be a different religion, no problem. Right? Then, then we don't have to deal with you. You're Chutzlamachne. The modern times, the state of Israel has done this legally with like the Karaites and the Samaritans. These are groups who claim to be ancient Jews one way or the other. And the position of the Rabbanut has always been. You guys have completely religious freedom. You're a different religion. That's all. So in the modern state of Israel, if two Karayim want to get married, it's no problem. Go through the, and everything has to be done through a basin. Go through the Karayim basin, the Karayim rabbit. No, no problem. Do your thing. You're not part of us. And same thing with the Shomron and with the Samaritans and all the rest of it. You know, once you're Chutz you're not bottom. We're not brothers and sisters anymore. We're not in the same family. You're in a different family. That completely changes dynamic. You see? If you are in my family and you misbehave or something like that, that can cause a lot of anguish. That can cause a lot of trouble. That can cause a lot of trouble. Right? So it's just interesting. Is, again, talking about an ancient, literally, it's talking about an ancient mourning practice. But it's also talking about a much wider reality. You know, the idea of the Jews separating forming distinct groups, arguing, disagreeing with each other, and even fighting each other, that's a, a relatively, uh, you know, kind of modern type of zah. Okay? In that sense. Now, you could argue with me. You say they, they had civil wars among the Jews already after the death of Shlomo Melch, which is true. They had civil wars among the Jews in the time of the Shoftim when they wiped out the tribe of Yemen. That is true. I get it. But on the basis that we have today, it moves, uh, it seems to me, on, on a different dynamic. And that's as far as Los Escudo is concerned. Um, we do have a very interesting part of the speech that Moshe have in this week's Parsha, where he says, let's see over here, 
Let's do this with the ladies' class. Uh, in the beginning, we talked about. Here we go. Moshe is warning the Jews what's going to happen when I'm gone, and you guys are going to enter Israel, and you'll find a going concern. In other words, as we know, the Jewish people after the death of Moshe, which is not a longer not long after the speech is given. We're about to cross the Jordan River and conquer Canaan. So in other words, they're not going into a virgin territory which is uninhabited. I repeat, uninhabited. They're going into a place which is inhabited, which is kind of strange. Why didn't God take us to a place where nobody was living and start from brand new? That is more or less how the United States of America came to be and some other places. Right? Well, I'll tell you what I mean by that. When the white man came to this country, there were Indians, but the Indians didn't, they lived tribal existence, you know, moving from here to there and, and so forth. And they didn't build cities and whole Zachen so that you came and you actually took over a going uh, civilization. Not in North America. Now, by contrast, in South America, you did have that. And you had the Aztecs, the Incas, and who knows what. And indeed, what happened there was a bloodbath and a holocaust. When the Spanish, you know, after Columbus came in South America, Central America, they took over whole kingdoms and wiped them out, enslaved them, and it was pretty bad. Which is why I always tell people who from time to time I hear some idiot try and say, Christopher Columbus was really Jewish. First of all, I say he's not Jewish. That's number one. He was not. Okay? Number two, why are you even interested in wanting to associate Columbus with the Jews anyway? Because the guy was actually responsible for a major holocaust. Why would I want to put that on the back of my head? I repeat, he's not Jewish anyway, as far as history is concerned. But it used to be such a thing. So, um, when the Jews come to Canaan, it's more like the Spanish in South America rather than the, the Americans, the English in North America. Because when the English came to North America, the area was like largely uninhabited. The Indians were just like, sort of nomadic and, you know, or they hung around the place, but they didn't build up what you and I would call large urban um, western type of situation. They didn't come to uh, Indian farms and things like that. Not to my knowledge, anyway. I'm not a buck unit. As far as I'm aware. Now, um, so the white men came in. They, they, they killed out the Indians. They were chasing away. And then they set up all these farms and whatever. The USA was settled by European coming to empty land. Empty land. Now, the people who lived there before were killed out. Uh, this is what used to be called the shame of America. That was that lady Jackson who wrote that book already in 1876. But it happened, and these people came and took a member 40 acres of them, you'll get for free land, free carca. Um, in that case, when a person comes to a forest, and knocks it down and, 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 and builds a farm there, which is what they did. So there's nothing left, hardly anyway, from their Indians. Now I'm going to contrast that with, like the Spanish, you know, you go to Mexico and these other places, I've never been there. They have all these temples and junk left over from the Aztecs and who knows what, the Mayans and Incas and so forth. They might have the Abedazar there. Um... That is the situation that Claudius all had when they came 
after the death of Moshe when they came to Canaan. They're taking over a place that's already been inhabited. And so forth. So that means that God is telling them, cross the Jordan, kill out the people there, or chase them out, and then settle in their houses and work their farms and pick the trees that they planted. Cultivate the gardens that they that they originated, which is strange. And in that context, you're going to inherit everything used to belong to them. Watch out for their gods, for their idols. Right? Because since it's not going to be like America, where you're coming to empty virgin territory, but the reverse of that, so then you're going to take over not only their houses and their horses and their farms and their barns and who knows what, but the idols all over the place. Okay? Um, it says, Abay Tabdun is called Makomas Hashavdu Hashem Agayim. Abay Tabdun means you should surely make sure that you get rid of all those places. The exact language is, it's called Hamakomos Hashavdu Hashem Agayim. We destroy the places where they worship. Now, that can mean a lot of things. But it can mean simply the places where the churches are and the idols. Or it could be that certain places that they worship per se. They're going to have idols and junk like all over the place. On the hills and the valleys, under the trees and whatever, because that's the way the pagan civilization ran. And you see, Moshe is taking this very stark because he gets into details. ניתצתם or whatever it is, Shibartim. And you're going to have trees, Asherim, Tisrim Beish, assuming that they're trees. I mean, it could also mean the goddess Asherah. Upsilium to Gadim. So it's not simply get rid of all this stuff. He gets detailed because he's afraid if he doesn't get detailed, people say he never told us to do it. And he should even go so far. So when you get to those places where the idols were, you have to destroy them. And Ibaratim Hashmon, which is a very suggestive kind of language. Um, Rashi, of course, famously says, you call them by uh, bad names, Shem Ganai. You know what I mean? This is where you get the idea, instead of saying Christmas, you say Kratzmach. Instead of saying based Tfilosom, you say based Tiflosom. You find it's a lot in this form in the rabbinic literature. And it's really a little weird that Moshe Rabbeinu and Hashem is saying you have to use put-down language when it comes to them. Like, that's going to help or something. I don't know. A little strange to me. But, Now, more Pashim shot is like Chizkuni and the others, where what they mean, is um, destroy the old names that they used and replace it with new Hebrew names. So it shouldn't be known 
as uh, you know, Baal City, Asherah City, but should we be called something else? Now it'll be called, I don't know, Yerushalayim, Hebron, Akko, Haifa, whatever. Not after the idols. In other words, the changing of the name itself is part of the process of erasing the memory of the place as an Abodazara. Uh, here you have the concept of using naming, naming process as a hegemonic discourse, as a domination kind of tactic. By changing the name and imposing my name on it, I'm like uh, exercising a domination over it. You know where we see this all the time? Right now. In Eastern Europe, for example, I'm going to ask you the following question. Do you say Lemberg or do you say Lvov or do you say Lviv? Or now do you say Kiev or do you say Kiev? Uh, since there's a war raging between the Ruskies and the Ukrainians, and their language is actually quite similar. Many things about them are similar. So it makes a big difference what name and what dialect is used in naming the names to see whether you call it part of Russia or part of Ukraine. So the Ukrainians will say, you got to say Kiev, don't say Kiev, because then you're using a Russian name. So you say, well, what's the big deal of using a Russian name? Oh, then you're being Moscow as part of Russia. You have to say it our way, so then you're Moscow, it's not part of Russia, it's part of Ukraine. Like I said, the easy example to remember is the city of Lemberg. The Germans called it Lemberg, and the Austrians, who were Germans, ruled it. But And the Jews then they did. The Polacks called it Lvov. The Ukrainians called it Lviv. So if I walked into the city today and said, what's the weather temperature in Lvov? The Ukrainians would beat me up. On the other hand, if I went, you know, into Russian headquarters, Putin's name, and I said, What's the story with Lviv? He'll beat me up. Why? It's just a name. No, it's not just a name. A name can be used as a hegemonic discourse. And when we come to the state of Israel, of course, when Israel became, when the Arabs conquered it back in the 6 and 700s, they put in all kinds of Arab names. Uh, when Israel started in 48, 49, they switched all those names to Ivrit names. By switching the name you're imposing this kind of, like I say, uh, hegemonic control. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. So Moshe says, whatever the name used to be, now you call by given a different name. That is a strategy of erasing memory, which is a very firm kind of thing. Which means, the biggest revenge I can get on you, if you're my enemy, is to arrange it in such a way that nobody ever knew you existed a few years from now. Nobody ever knew you existed. Because uh, then your message, everything else dies because if there's nobody who knows about it or listens to it, it, it has no significance. And so imagine if someone dies and somebody buries all their information. I mean, they they go on throughout history with, with as in, insignificance. You see? The insignificance. And so what does he say over here? If possible, try to arrange things that you, people don't even know there was a Bodhisattva there. Now this was a big failure. All you need to do is go on any tour of Israel. They'll show you where all the idol junk was. I myself, you know, I'm doing a tour, I hope, in the second week of January, like I said. Um, I don't like to go necessarily to the idol places, by and large. But it's interesting that they preserve these things from a strict 
Old Testament point of view, don't say, oh, this is the place where they used to do the Asher or the or the Moloch. Isn't that terrible? Don't even be garbage it. It's like, now, lo sasun king l'ashem l'kechem. But don't do that to Hashem, which is one of those controversial psukim, which has all these different meanings to it. But in my context, and time is running out, so I'll just share one thought. Uh, it's fascinating. Among most Jews in the world today, certainly in America, sadly, we have been mekayim v'ibadatim v'shmam in In the wrong way. Notice, when it says, lo sasun king l'ashem l'kechem, in the modern era, also King Lashem Because you know and I know, most Jews out there in America and elsewhere aren't even aware of these things. Go to somebody in America who's not from, and say, what's the Parsha Sashavua? Or say the Parsha Sashavua is Re'e. They look at you like you talk Turkish. Ask them what's a Dafyomi. Ask them what's a Simashas. Frankly, a lot of people can say like this. Ask them what is a Shavuos, Achon Shal Pesach, things like that. Tell somebody what time is Hadlokas Neiris. They don't know what you're talking about, you see, because they become estranged from it. And so the thing the Torah warned about, which is don't do to the Jewish religion, what the Hebrews were supposed to do to the Canaanite religion, ended up that the Jews did do this. And we're living in a time where, as I said before, you're not knowing men and because they don't know better. Most Jews today, I mean, I don't know, most, many today don't keep anything or aren't into anything. They just never heard of it. You understand? Uh, which is sad, which goes to show you how powerful a tool it is to erase the memory of something from being there in the first place. Okay? From being there in the first place. And every conqueror throughout history has done it. The Arabs did it to the Jews, the Israelis did it to the Arabs, the Germans to the Russians, the Russians to the Germans, the Chinese to this and that and the other. That's what they do. But Ha'avodah Sashem is like a very, very powerful kind of uh, business. So even though the Pusik is talking about where you bring Karbonus, but the Ibaratim is almost like a characteristic of our era and of our times. There's more to talk about, but I don't want to go too long. So let me leave you with those thoughts and uh, thank the two-legged creatures and the four-legged creatures out in Green Acres and Dr. Bernstein um, and wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.com support.rabbidavidkatz.com